This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So Ted Hughes' first two books of poetry came rather quickly, The Hawk in the Rain in 1957 and The Looper Call in 1960. But uh, his next major collection, he did some stuff with small presses in between, but his next major collection didn't appear until 1967, and that is called uh, Wodewo, and for a lot of biographical reasons, including the suicide of Sylvia Plath and the fallout uh, from that um, is one of the reasons why you imagine that that there would have to be a gap in uh, in anyone's life, let alone one's uh, creative life. In a letter from the time, from 1967, just before the book came out, Ted Hughes writes, I collected these salvageable parts from what I'd produced between 1960 and 1966, and it will come out in May. About 50 poems and five stories and a radio play arranged in a short narrative, in a sort of narrative. The pieces on their own are okay, several of my better things, but read as a connected work and interpreted properly, it's a rather sickly book. But it's the end of a phase and not the phase that I trust. Um, which is kind of strange. Usually you would expect a poet to, or anybody really, to be cheerleading whatever the current thing is that they've done, but if you've been nursing it for seven years, I imagine the, the impulse more is to just get it out of the way, and that seems to be what Hughes was doing. Um, so I'm going to read uh, about six poems from the book. I don't think it's uh, as much of a. Um, I don't think it's much of an end of a phase kind of book as he does, or a sickly book. If you go to the collected poems, you'll find that uh, the only things collected there are the poems that he mentions, the fifty or so poems. Uh, the the story and the radio play are not included, and that's probably uh, for the best as well. But I think it's some really good work, although what it's leading to is Crow and uh, all the major work of the 1970s that he does. Not just the major work, but the sort of, uh, you might say, mistakes of the 1970s as well. But there's a huge outpouring in the 70s, and um, it begins with Crow, which was already on his mind at this time. 
I'll read something else about the book Woad Woe in a moment, but wanted to get a few of the poems in first. Let's see. The first is called A Wind Flashes the Grass. A wind flashes the grass, leaves pour blackly across. We cling to the earth with glistening eyes, pierced afresh by the tree's cry, and the incomprehensible cry from the boughs in the wind sets us listening for below words, meanings that will not part from the rock. The trees thunder in unison on a gloomy afternoon, and the plowman grows anxious, his tractor becomes terrible as his memory litters downwind and the shadow of his bones tosses darkly on the air. The trees suddenly storm to a stop and a hush against the sky where the field ends. They crowd there shuddering and wary like horses bewildered by lightning. The stirring of their twigs against the dark traveling sky is the oracle of the earth. They too are afraid, they too are momentary, streams, rivers of shadow. And the next poem is called Revelé. No, the serpent was not one of God's ordinary creatures. Where did he creep from? this legless land swimmer with a purpose. Adam and lovely Eve, deep in the first dream, each the everlasting holy one of the other, woke with cries of pain. Each clutched a throbbing wound, a sudden cruel bite. The serpent's head, small and still, smiled under the lilies. Behind him, his coils had crushed all Eden's orchards. And out beyond Eden, the black, thickening river of his body glittered in giant loops around the desert mountains and away over the ashes of the future. The next one is is uh, from a poem called Out, and I think it is, this is part one uh, from a poem called Out, and I think this is one of the only times that Ted Hughes writes about the First World War uh, from his, from an autobiographical perspective. There is a time where, where uh, I believe he is imagining or actually describing how he was walking with his uncle in over the battlefields of France. But here he is imagining himself, or remembering, uh, being a little boy and dealing with his father, who was also a veteran of the First World War, and um, the difficulties of that. Uh, It says, My father sat in his chair recovering from the four-year mastication by gunfire and mud body buffeted wordless, 
estranged by long soaking in the colors of mutilation. His outer perforations were valiantly healed, but he and the hearth fire, its blood flicker on biscuit bowl and piano and table leg, moved into strong and stronger possession of minute after minute as the clock's tiny cog labored and on the thread of his listening dragged him bodily from under the mortised four-year strata of dead Englishmen he belonged with. He felt his limbs clearing with every slight gingerish movement, while I, small and four, lay on the carpet as his luckless double, his memories buried immovable anchor, among jawbones and blown-off boots, tree stumps, shell cases, and craters, under rain that goes on drumming its rods and thickening its kingdom, which the sun has abandoned, and where nobody can ever again move from shelter. And in Jonathan Bates' biography of Hughes, uh, he has this to say about the book. Uh, it was published in May of 1967, and uh, it mentions uh, where the title comes from, and I'll do my best here with, old, uh, with Middle English. If you have your copy of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight with the Middle English on the left and the uh, translation on the right, uh, the line sounds something like this. Some a while with wormeth he weareth, and with wolves alice, some a while with woad woes, that woned in Canareth. This is Sir Gawain, encountering an array of monsters as he crosses, quote, the wilderness of Wiral in his quest for the Green Knight in the poem that Hughes had especially admired when, when taking the medieval paper at Cambridge. The Wodwo was a hairy wild man of the woods. And in the title poem, written in early 1961, and printed as the last poem in the collection, he noses around, quote, turning leaves over, following a faint stain on the air to the river's edge. End quote. like an adult version of one of the creatures in Ted's children's tales, or really like uh, anyone in his poems, I guess mostly his later poems. I'm thinking of uh, uh, Remains of Element, uh, anyone following a faint stain on the air to the river's edge, or from the poems in the book called River. Uh, he says in another letter to somebody that uh, the poem was a, quote, transit camp on the way to the next big thing, which, as I said, was Crow. And that reminds me again of Seamus Heaney's wonderful remark. Uh, you are either, uh, a poet either gets going, sort of stays the course, or you start again. And for Hughes, at least, especially if, uh, if you consider that long seven-year gap, for someone as prolific as him, to have to wait that long for another big book of poems to come out. Um, you can see why he would have thought that this was just a transit camp, something on the way to something much larger. 
He also says that there was an awful lot of himself in it, which is probably why it was unsatisfactory. And for me anyway, if, and if anyone else has read Jonathan Bates' biography of Hughes, that sort of corrects what seems to be uh, Jonathan Bates' thesis in the book, which is that from the time of Sylvia Plath's suicide uh, until 1997 or 98, when Ted Hughes' book about his relationship with Sylvia Plath called Birthday Letters came out, um, the assumption is the scholarly assumption of Jonathan Bate, anyway, is that Hughes was kind of on hold or uh, in the grip or in the vice or uh, weighed down by not being able to write directly and autobiographically about Plath. And there are a lot of reasons why he decided not to do that. But um, for my money and in my mind, and even though Hughes does say something like that, when um, when Birthday Letters is about to come out, is about to appear, he says that he feels freed for the first time in 30 years or so. Um, again, uh, his reaction to Wodwo as being uh, something of a... Uh, uh, on a way station uh, towards something else, towards something better, uh, or thinking uh, that this new book, Birthday Letters, in 1998, is a sudden freeing for him, um, I would, I guess, be wary of what someone thinks in the moment when the sudden burst of energy has finally uh, reached book form, because uh, I think Hughes did a wonderful job in the books of the 70s and the early 80s, dealing with himself and autobiography in an indirect way, a more indirect way, and that is what made the poems great. And I guess you can get a sense even from Crow, the next big book, that he is dealing with uh, autobiography in a way that is different from what he's doing here in Wodwo. And just reading the poems aloud now, you can sort of see what he means, that the book isn't quite as successful as the others. Just three more here, actually four more. Um, this is a poem called The Warriors of the North. Bringing their frozen swords, their salt-bleached eyes, their salt-bleached hair, the snow's stupefied anvils in rows, bringing their envy, the slow ships feelered southward, snails over the steep sheen of the water globe, thawed at the red and black disgorging of abbeys, the bountiful cleft casks, the fluttered bowels of the women of dead burghers, and the elaborate, patient gold of the gales, to no end but this timely expenditure of themselves, a cash-down beforehand revenge with extra for the grueling relapse and prolongure of their blood into the iron arteries of Calvin. That's a nice imagining of a Viking raid. This poem is called Heptonstall. 
black village of gravestones, skull of an idiot whose dreams die back where they were born, skull of a sheep whose meat melts under its own rafters, only the flies leave it, skull of a bird, the great geographies, drained to sutures of cracked window sills. Life tries, death tries, the stone tries, only the rain never tires. And that sounds like something, again, from uh, uh, Remains of Elmet. And you can see, uh, comparing these to the other collections I've read to, or I've read from of his, that this does, it doesn't feel like a whole, it doesn't feel like, uh, not necessarily a narrative, but it doesn't feel like something that quite holds together the way his others do. But it's nice to see how he got where he was going after this. This is a poem called You Drive in a Circle. You drive in a circle slowly a hundred miles through the powerful rain. Your clothes are toweled with sweat, and the car glass sweats, and there is a smell of damp dog. Rain sog is rotting your shoes to paper over old hairy moors, a dark arctic depth, cresting under rain, where the road topples, plunging with its crazed rigging like a rackety iron tanker into a lunge of spray emerges again through hard rendings of water, drowned eyes at the melting windshield. Out above the swamped moor wallows, the mist gulfs of no thinking. Down in there are the sheep, rooted like sponges, chewing and digesting and undeterred. What could they lose, however utterly they drowned? Already sodden as they are with the world, like fossils. And what is not the world is God, a starry comforter of good blood. Where are you heading? Everything is already here. Your hardest look cannot anchor out among these rocks. Your coming days cannot anchor among these torn clouds that cannot anchor. Your destination waits where you left it. I don't know, for me, just reading those and imagining seven years and the reason for the seven years, um, it feels like a huge uh, struggle. It feels like uh, someone who doesn't quite know what they want to say or where they want to go. And if you're talking about uh, the suicide of your wife and figuring out how to uh, take care of your children and uh, the reputation of your wife uh, trying to keep that safe and sane and also trying to help uh, her family as well, dealing with her death. Uh, it, it's almost um, someone who wonders whether the poetry is even 
necessary or worthwhile anymore. At least that's what it seems to me. Um, but I think, especially with Crow, if you go to the recordings I made from that book, uh, there is a sense of having found a way to deal with these things in poetry uh, in a way that uh, is much different than the poems in World Woe. There's one more poem here, and this is one that is uncollected. It was published between 1967 and 1970. And this is another look at, uh, at World War I. And this is part one uh, from a poem called Scapegoats and Rabies, uh, a typical Ted Hughes title at this point in his life, I suppose. Scapegoats and Rabies, part one. Soldiers are marching, singing, down the lane. They get their abandon from the fixed eyes of girls, from their own armed anonymity, and from having finally paid up all life might demand. They get their heroic loom from the statue stare of old women, from the trembling chins of old men, from the napes and bow legs of toddlers, from the absolute steel of their automatic rifles, and the lizard spread of their own fingers, and from their bird stride. They get their facelessness from the blank, deep meadows and the muddling streams and the hill's eyeless outlook, the babble of gravestones, the moldering of letters and citations on rubbish dumps. They get the drumming engine of their boots from their hearts, from their eyeless, earless hearts, their brainless hearts, and their bravery from the dead millions of ghosts marching in their boots, cumbering their bodies, staring from under their brows, concentrating toward a repeat performance, and their hopelessness from the millions of the future marching in their boots, blindfold and riddled, rotten heads on their singing shoulders, the blown-off right hand swinging to the stride of the stumps scorched and blown-off legs helpless in the terrible engine of the boots. The soldiers go singing down the deep lane, wraiths into the bombardment of afternoon sunlight, whelmed under the flashing onslaught of the barley, strangled in the drift of honeysuckle. Their bodiless voices rally on the slope and again in the far woods, and then settle like dust under the ancient burden of the hill. Any comments? or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.